A good journalist makes us think about issues we've never considered and think more deeply about the issues we have considered. And Fareed Zakaria is a very good journalist. Welcome to Before the Cheering Started, a podcast all about the journey to success, the early obstacles, plan Bs, the doubt, and the passion to push forward. At this time when shouting and preening and posturing is seen all too often as public discourse, Fareed Zakaria's work provides a thoughtful, smart, and approachable alternative. And it's been that way for some 30 years. It comes across on the page in his foreign affairs column for the Washington Post and in his many books. And it comes across on screen as the host of CNN's Fareed Zakaria GPS. His opinion was being sought by movers and shakers even when he was in graduate school. And there weren't too many years before the cheering started. But those early experiences, growing up as the son of a politician in India, arriving as a freshman at Yale, even walking out halfway through his LSAT exam, those early experiences inform his work today. I first interviewed Fareed Zakaria in 2005. Almost 20 years ago, he was already pointing to the possibility of some of the elements that we see in our politics today. When I first interviewed you, Almost 20 years ago, you had written the book, The Future of Freedom, and you also had the, the iconic uh, cover story, uh, Why They Hate Us. Is it a different world now? And would your tone in that book and that article be different now because of all that this country internally has gone through? Oh boy, that's a very good question. So on the on the future of freedom, uh, I feel as though, um, in some ways, sadly, the book was very prescient because if you as you remember, it talked about the rise of illiberal democracy. It talked about the way in which we were moving into a world where the the great danger we faced was elected autocrats, people who you know, were willing to go through the democracy part of liberal democracy and then gut the constitutional protections, uh, individual rights, separation of uh, of powers. And, you know, people at the time, if there was a criticism of the book, is that, oh, you know, Fareed's describing something that is happening in Russia and Belarus and the Philippines and Turkey and India. But you know, half the book was about America, about my fears about the rise of illiberal democracy in America. And that was that was that was sort of seen as, you know, a bridge too far. We, we were we were very healthy. And in fact, what we've seen is the point I was trying to make, which is everywhere democracy is fragile. And what's really sad is everybody likes majority rule. Nobody wants to protect minority rights. Nobody wants to protect the rule of law because everyone, when they're in power, wants to abuse power in, in small ways and big ways. And so in a, in a way, it, it ended up being very prescient. The, the why they hate us, which was on the roots of Islamic fundamentalism, I feel like we're in a very different place. I was writing that piece to try to help people understand this incredibly traumatic moment of 9-11 and how could this happen? Uh, and making people understand the complexity of what had been going on inside the world of Islam for the last, for the preceding decades. 
I feel like in an odd way, you know, we've come to understand that better. There is less paranoia. There is, I, I get less uh, hate mail and stuff like that for the color of my skin and my name and the fact that I was born Muslim. Um, so for all, in all those ways, I think we've learned, you know, Ambrose Bierce in the Devil's Dictionary has a wonderful line. He says that uh, war, uh, he defines war as God's way of teaching Americans geography. So we, we've sort of learned a little bit about that part of the world. If the cover story was being written today, it probably would more appropriately be why we hate each other yes. as opposed to why yeah. they hate us. And that's a very good point that, you know, that was out of that tragedy did come a lot of uh, a sense of national unity. You remember that George Bush, who was pretty unpopular at that point in his presidency before 9-11, uh, I think he went up to a 90% approval rating uh, right after 9-11. When a journalist writes a piece or broadcasts a piece, you hope obviously it has an effect and you hope people read it, people watch it, people learn from it. But when a piece like Why They Hate Us is written and then read in government circles domestically and internationally, that's a position that even for those of us in the field, 99.999% of us will never be in. And what is that feeling like? Oh, it's, very, it's exhilarating, right? This is why we go into, into journalism uh, or, you know, write in more, more broadly, which is to have an impact, to feel as though you're helping to shape uh, the way the public perceives something and both the public and people who are in leadership positions. Um, I think that uh, I got lucky in several senses, and I think that in in life, one is always it's always important to remember the the place that luck, uh, the part that luck plays, because um, I got the timing right. You know, I did it right after 9/11 when people were really asking this question, and I I remember it was a crazy week. I think I pulled three all-nighters because it's a 7,000-word essay, I think, and I wrote it in three days. Uh, but but it was important to get it out. Um, I got lucky in in that it it really I think tried to it it addressed with the right tone. Uh, you know, it got the sense of outrage, but it really said, "Let me go deeper and let me you know stay with me." I took the gamble that people were willing to read a seven thousand word essay on the origins of Islamic fundamentalism. But the biggest way in which I got lucky is. You know, it was before the technological revolutions that, that rendered magazines, put magazines in a very different place. You, know, you and I remember this, but but when I tell my, my kids this, it's difficult for them to understand the power that magazines had and that a magazine like Newsweek had. You know, we have four or five million subscribers around the world, 20 million readers, 95% renewal rates on subscription. Uh, and people read, people read these these things in a way that, and everybody read, you know, there was a kind of um, a sense in which it was like, you know, when we went to the movies in the old days, you knew that everyone had seen, you know, Indiana Jones or when Harry met Sally or something like that. And we've lost that central, those central fora and Time and Newsweek and, the, you know, a few other places were like that. And so I regard myself as very lucky as having had that moment where you really did get the attention of everybody uh, and you had the opportunity uh, to, to make your case. 
that's gone. I don't know how in today's world you recreate that. You know, something can, you know, yes, things go viral, but even there it's with a segment. You know, it's never quite the same feeling of speaking to, to the, you know, to the left and the right and all that's all gone. I always like to tell the story of the actor Kevin Bacon's father, who was the city planner in Philadelphia for many, many years and was on the cover of Time magazine in 1964, back when being on the cover of Time magazine was on the cover of Time magazine. It's just, you know, it's part of a larger problem we've lost, which is this idea of a, a kind of central de dialogue debate that we can have, a central cultural, a, cent a set of central, even cultural uh, 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 kind of icons that we can all go a less around. You know, there's a there's a period in our lives when you you had so many of those. Everybody watched Cheers. Everybody watched Seinfeld. Everybody had read you know the Bonfire of the Vanities when it came out. Everybody you had watched when Harry met Sally. We're 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 now in a world where everybody has their own customized niche. Um, and that's, to my mind, part of the polarization. It's not the only piece of it, but it's this narrow casting that everybody does, political or non-political. You mentioned debate. Uh, can you tell me what the debate or the discussion was like at home growing up in India? Was it about the particulars of your life growing up, school and family and so on? Or was there a conversation in the home you grew up in about there's a big world out there? and you should know about it and you should go out and grab it. So it's, it's, a very, it's very interesting when I think back on it and I think about my own kids. I grew up in, in, a, in, a, world, in a family in which there was intense conversation all the time about what was going on in India and around the world politically, economically, socially. Um, there was very little conversation about the day-to-day the, the -day you know, kind of tri trivia of life. Um, and that was because my father was a politician, my mother was a journalist, and they treated us like adults. They treated it, they, the, so the dinner table conversation was really conducted at their level. It was not done to educate us. I think that's an important point, which is because there was a downside to this. Um, it was done in a way which was, this is what we're talking about. You're welcome to listen in. You're welcome to join in. But, you know, we're not going to cut you any slack. And this is not like we're not doing this politics for dummies or the this is the ABCs. Nobody would sit and explain it to us like that. We had to catch up. We had to figure out what was going on. We had to, you know, often be quiet and just listen and learn. Um, so it was exhilarating at one level. And it helped me as a young man, I think, be very comfortable in the world of uh, politics and economics ideas, but also in the world of grown-ups. You know, I think that was a skill that I learned as a young person that, that I noticed that young people today don't have as much of because in a way, we adults, we descend to the level of children to explain everything, to play with them. We listen to their music. You know, I had to listen to my... my there were no kids' movies when I was growing up in India. You know, if you wanted to go to a movie, you went with your parents to My Fair Lady or to Lawrence of Arabia. And, and, you, and I remember watching both of those. So in a way, it was a very, it, was, it, it helped me grow up and it helped me deal with the grown-up world. Um, there was a sense in which there was a bit of a lost childhood. 
Um, not entirely, obviously, because I had my, my, my school friends and we did all the silly little things kids do. But at home, there was, um, you know, it was my parents' movie. I was, I, I was welcomed. I had front row seats, but it was my parents' movie. And, and you know, you had, to, you had to fit in. The fact that your father was a politician, and I am going to presume that you looked at him and thought he was doing so to help people and to put in policies and promote policies that he thought would be helpful to uh, people and the country. Does that have an effect on the way you still see politicians today? Yeah, very, very interesting and uh, observant point. I once had a, I, 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 my first job was with uh, the New Republic uh, as an intern and Mike Kinsley was the legendary editor of the New Republic. And we once had a conversation where he said, um, you know, many years later, he said, you know, I, I, I noticed something about your writing. You never really go for the jugular with a politician. You never, you never ask, you know, you, you don't eviscerate them. And, and I said, you're right, Mike. It's because maybe it's because my dad was a politician. And I know that a lot of times they're, they're trying to do what they think is best. You know, obviously they're trying to survive politically at the same time. And they're hoping those two things go together. Uh, but sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. But it's often it's not completely venal. These are people who are trying their best within the, you know, within the, the confines of what they see as their constraints. And a lot of times they screw up. But I don't have that instinctive sense that these people are idiots. These people are bozos. These people are deeply corrupt. Um, and that did influence my, my, my view. Now, my father was very driven by that sense of uplifting people. You know, he, he, he tried very hard. He, he represented a, a, a small town outside of Bombay. And he worked mightily to get, you know, industry into the town. He would go and meet with CEOs and say, you've got to invest in, in, in this place. And they would tell him, well, the reason we can't is the, tra the trains don't work, you know, the train station isn't big enough. He'd go to the government, uh, the Ministry of Trains and say, you've got to expand this train station. So he got an airport put in. He got five-star hotels to move there. He got a huge industrial park done. And I grew up seeing all this, you know, so I'm sure that that has some effect. Um, but for him, you know, the biggest, the, the biggest realization I had growing up with, with watching him was, what a high-stakes game politics can be. Because, you know, my, my father was a Muslim politician in India. Muslims are a minority in India. And so he was always navigating, you know, how do you make sure that you bring a, a backward community along? How do you make sure you don't trigger the, you know, kind of uh, the sense of um, uh, discrimination among the majority community? How do you, you know, all, all this is, it, it's sort of like, at its, at its highest, it can be life or death for these communities because, you know, if you get it right, you make sure there's harmony. If you get it wrong, there are rel religious riots where people die. I understand that the man who was your mother's boss uh, when you were growing up was a man who had a great influence on you. Who was he and, and why was that influence so great? Sure. His name was Hushwan Singh. He was an Indian novelist who then became a journalist. And by the end of his life, had become the most famous uh, writer in India, a kind of journalist in India. He wrote uh, columns that were sometimes funny. He, it was a very imagined sort of uh, 
Russell Baker uh, merged with Tom Friedman, merged with, you know, he had a kind of, he, he would write about anything he wanted, uh, including, you know, uh, going to a dinner party last night. He could be very gossipy. He could be very funny. He was a great novelist. He wrote a series of very good novels, won a couple of big awards, even internationally. Um, he was very important to me because my father was a bit of a distant father. He was a, he was a very impressive man, as you can tell. Uh, he was an orphan who built, who kind of worked his way up. He got a scholarship to high school, but he was formal. He was a bit older than my mother. He was an you know older father for for me. I, I think in my 18 years of schooling in India, I, I don't think he ever went to my school once. I, I can't remember him ever asking me about my homework. So Khushwan Singh, who was my mother's boss and a great journalist, and a great, he for some reason became a kind of mentor. Um, so he we. He taught me uh, about poetry and how important it was to memorize poetry so that you had the the cadences of the language in your head. And he would you know, we would go on a walk and he'd and he'd start reciting Wordsworth or or Shelley or Keats and show me how you know keeping it in your head was so important. He taught me how to play tennis. He taught me how to swim. Um, and so I ended up you know luckily with almost two father figures. Uh, and and the, the two of them were great friends, my father and 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 Hushwan Singh. So there was no there was no uh, tension there. Uh, but it it became at a very early age. I saw the kind of power of language if used well, uh, and that's stayed with me my whole life. I still uh, I, the, I there's one thing I collect in life, which is uh, first editions of books of poetry. Uh, and I have a small collection, and I sometimes think of it as sort of in homage to him. Do you have a favorite? Um, I love Tennyson. I love, uh, if, you, if you remember Tennyson's uh, great poem, Ulysses, where the aged king is talking about have, kind of having going, looking back on his life uh, and, you know, thinking about all the, the things he had done. And then he decides at the end of the poem that, you know, He's still gonna. He's still got it. He's still gonna be, try and make one great voyage, uh, and he and he talks about it. And I think the closing lines of that poem, which are often quoted, are you know something like, "We are not now that strength which in old days moved earth and heaven, but that which we are, we are, one equal temper of heroic hearts, made weak by time and fate, but strong of will, to strive, to seek, to find, and not to yield." I think the love of poetry took. <laughs> I think that worked out. I'm, I've always thought that the, the interesting life has a wide variety of influences and loves. Uh, I can love um, uh, history and the New York Rangers and uh, Jerry and the Pacemakers. And so you have Tennyson and poetry, but also growing up, as I understand it, you have I Love Lucy. <laughs> you know, it's a sign of how poor India was in those days. Television comes to India when I'm 10 years old, 1974, black and white, four or five hours a day, one channel. Most of it is agricultural documentaries. Uh, if you ask why, it's because most of India lived in the, in the vill villages. And so it was all these tales of the noble farmer and things like that. Um, and on Sunday nights, they would, do, they would do one Bollywood movie at six o'clock, I still remember. And literally the whole country would have been watching at this point. In villages, they used to take photographs of the entire village crowded around this one television set 
on which you know a, a Bollywood movie was playing. And before that movie, they had the one piece of imported entertainment, which I still remember in the 1970s was reruns of I, I Love Lucy. That was all I think they could afford. Not, by the way, Here's Lucy, which was the 1970s Lucy, uh, Lucille Ball show. This is, I mean, the I Love Lucy from the late 1950s. So we were watching, and it's a, it's a reminder of how closed the world was and how cut off we all were. So we were as Indians watching, you know, this, we were thinking this is what America is like in the 1970s. We were watching 1950s sitcoms and thinking that's what America is like. So you went to, a, as I understand it, a British Anglican mm -hmm. school in, in India. And yet when you chose, when you go, went to college, you came to the United States. Was there ever a question of, oh, should I go to the United States or should I go to Great Britain? Uh, it's a it's a interesting question because it, the, you know it's a good illustration of of the of the notion that uh, culture follows power and money, by which I mean in the 1960s uh, the smartest kids in my school would go to Oxford and Cambridge on scholarships. By the 1970s, you remember the British economy collapses in the in the early 1970s, and Britain is basically declining as a world power and the money ran out. There, were, they had, there used to be all these government scholarships that they had for bright Indians, probably a legacy of the colonial period. Um, that had all dried up. Meanwhile, the American colleges were becoming richer and richer and were beginning to offer financial aid to foreign students for the first time. So by the time I'm looking at it as a, as a middle-class Indian, Britain was really no longer an option um, because I could not have afforded the fees. And so if you were going to go somewhere on scholarship, really the only place was the United States. But that in a way is a metaphor for the way in which the United States had become, had captured the imagination of people like me in India. We had lost any, even though we had this close association with Britain because India was a British colony for a hundred years. Um, we had lost that sense of, uh, you know, kind of aspirational attraction. And America was where it was at. America was the center of the world. And so I applied to a whole bunch of American universities. Luckily got into almost all. I didn't get into one college, which is the one my brother had gotten into the year before, Harvard, um, which I now look at, regard as one of those great acts of, of uh, good luck. Because if I'd gone to Harvard, my brother and I were very close. I would have had a, a, an experience completely in his shadow. I would have had all his friends. I would have probably majored in the sciences just because he was majoring in the sciences. And because I went to a different place, I sort of had the freedom to develop myself and my own ideas and skills and knowledge and all that. So, um, so I, I always regard that as a, you know, one of those lucky things where I, 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 I look back, at the time I was shattered, but I look back and say, thank God I didn't get into Harvard. That other place you went to, Yale, as the old expression goes, Ain't exactly chopped liver. No, I was, I was very lucky. The notion of going away to college, like you can go uh, two hours away from home and still have pangs in those first weeks and months of, um, can, do I belong here? Can I hack it? Uh, homesickness, perhaps. Um, you came to an entirely different country for college. And um, even though you had been around uh, students who had gone away to college, gone abroad for college, uh, what was that experience like for you? And were, ever, were there ever any moments, we know how it worked out, 
but were there ever any early moments of, is this going to work out? Um, I had a very mixed feel, mixed feelings initially. I was on, almost as soon as I got to America, I fell in love with it. I just loved something about, the, I mean, which I still think is true, the kind of openness and warmth that Americans have to outsiders, I think is unparalleled in the world. I think that it's, an, it's instinctive. I think Americans don't worry a lot about sort of where you come from. Uh, you, you know, I realize now I was, I was in New Haven, Connecticut, not in, you know, uh, deepest Alabama, Mississippi. So maybe my view is, is colored, but I do think that that, that was my, my experience. And it felt, you know, and I also loved the fact that people at a place like Yale were so interested in everything in the world. And, you know, we had conversations about everything. I remember one of my roommates was a musician and we would talk about that for, you know, there was a kind of sense in which everyone was so interesting. I loved that. Um, initially, I did feel the pangs that you feel. I missed my mom. I missed the food. I missed uh, things like that. And I, and I missed, um, I wasn't sure, I hadn't found my niche. I hadn't found my, my, my people. I hadn't found my group. You know, so initially, my, I remember my freshman year, I was sort of swimming around and I, you know, I was getting on fine with people, but I didn't find my groove. And then I found, I, I, I discovered the kind of, and, and then I discovered the world of politics and uh, writing and journalism at Yale. And I joined the Yale Political Union, which was the kind of political club. The, I started writing for the Daily News. I started you know, writing for a ma magazine there. And by the end of my, my first year, it all sort of came together. And I always tell my, kid, my kids that, you know, you just need to find five or seven people who you really can, you don't need, you know, you don't need hundreds of people, but you do need that sense that you, you can go through the college experience with buddies, with people who really are simpatico. And I found that by the end of freshman year. So by then I was just, I mean, I was in heaven. I, I, I had a just magical experience in college in America. But I fell in love with America. I loved Yale. I loved my friends. Some of my closest friends uh, are still those people um, whom I met at Yale. I'm still in touch with almost all those people. If I were to name the 10 people I was closest to at Yale by the middle of my sophomore year, I think I'm in touch with all 10. And so at that point, or maybe you know, further on in, in uh, your undergraduate years, is the path clear to you as to what you want to do? Or is, it, is there like a plan B? Like, I, I think I want to study politics uh, and, and write. Is, was there ever a We know how it worked out. Answer, well. Uh, was there ever a plan B for, well, I might try this too. Oh, yeah. I had no idea what I was going to do uh, professionally. I, I started out doing science. Then I realized I really loved the humanities and social sciences. So I moved into, I became a history major. Um, I didn't know where to go with that. My mom would keep telling me, you should become an international lawyer because you know, she knew enough about my passion for international affairs, because I had that even when I was in India. But she was a good, like, you know, my mom was sort of like a, a, a Jewish mom, even though she was an Indian Muslim. So 
she thought like the law thing was like a good steady profession and I'd be able to pay the rent and so international law. So, and then I looked, so I looked into that and discovered there really wasn't anything like international law. I mean, there's, there's international public law like at the UN and all, but no, no countries don't follow that, that really, um, it, you know, most companies, when they do deals, they just choose one country's laws to apply. So you're just doing corporate law. Uh, and I was, so I thought maybe I'll be a lawyer. And I actually sat down and took the LSATs. Well, I sat to take the LSATs and I walked out halfway through because I realized that I really wasn't interested in being a lawyer. I probably was doing badly in the LSATs. So it, it must have been that. But I do remember just having this powerful realization. Why am I doing this? I don't want to be a lawyer. And I walked out. Can I ask... Uh... If you had friends or colleagues around you or fellow students, uh, what the looks were like at you, as you, if you recall, as you were walking you know, out, they used uh, to allow bathroom breaks and things like that. So I don't think it was as, <laughs> I don't think it was as startling. There were people occasionally getting up. So I just very quietly got up, took my num you know number two pencil, uh, and and walked out. Um, I, I took it in. I still remember. I, I took it in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So when I when I left, I had to go back and explain it to my brother, uh, who was at who was at Harvard at the time, and explain why I was doing it. He, he was very supportive, as he's always been my whole life. But um, what I remember, how about the explanation? Was there an explanation to your mom? You know what? I I don't think I told her that I had pulled out. I just told her the next part of the story, which is I realized I wanted to stay in America more than anything else. And so I thought to myself, what is the best way to be able to stay in America? Well, the longest degree I could get, which would keep me on a student visa, was a PhD. And so, honestly, largely so that I could stay in America, I applied for PhD programs. And this gives you a sense that I wasn't that, again, I wasn't that directed. I applied for PhD programs in political science, in history, and in, uh, in, in international economics at the Woodrow Wilson School in Princeton. So, so I was like trying, you know, whatever I could think of. And then luckily I got into Harvard's political science department and that resolved things because even for my parents who were worried about what I was doing, like Harvard was Harvard. Like if you got into Harvard, it must be okay. <laughs> and it was during those years that you went to the White House. Uh, while you were at Harvard, uh, well, and I'm first curious. went to the White House at Yale when I, I was I would led a delegation of Yale undergrads to uh, to Washington. We had this, you know, a lot of schools have it. The sort of go to Washington Day. So we spent a couple of days in Washington. I was the leader of the delegation, and we met with Vice President, then Vice President George Herbert Walker Bush. This was the Reagan presidency. Um, we met with. Uh, uh, Ted Kennedy, uh, when he was senator, David Bourne, uh, who was also a senator from Oklahoma. Um, we met with William Bennett, who was the secretary of education. I remember all of these meetings vividly, as you can tell. Um, it was great fun. It was my first time in the White House. I still remember we went, we were in the Roosevelt Room of the White House, and uh, Bush comes in, unbelievably gracious. Uh, you know, we, he was five minutes late, and he spent the first minute apologizing to us that we, he had kept, he, the vice president of the United States, had kept a bunch of undergrads waiting. A bunch of undergrads from his alma yes, mater? Yes, from his alma mater, yeah. 
So in those moments, both undergraduate and graduate, when you're at the White House, and you're not there for, especially as I understand it, when you're there as a graduate student, you're not there for a handshake and, and waving, but you're there to talk policy. Uh, can you recall the moments that you're walking in? Wow, you know, I, I, I'm here, I belong here, uh, and uh, I had this idea of uh, studying uh, politics, and it, it's happening, and I'm in the seat of, the very seat of politics right now. Yeah, I do remember that vividly. So that was Harvard. I was a grad student. I'd been writing. I'd written a bunch of op-eds in the New York Times and uh, places like that, and um, I get a call. Uh, Tony Lake, the, the national security advisor, this was Clinton's first national security advisor, so this is 92, 93, uh, is convening a small group of outside experts to help the administration think through some foreign policy challenges, and would you come? And I remember being exhilarated, of course, but kind of panicked because I was on a student visa. And I thought to myself, like, I, can, can, I, can somebody with a student visa even enter the White House? Like, how does it work? So I asked the, 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 the person on the other end, and, and she was like, she's very, she long paused and she said, hmm, I, I didn't, we didn't think about that. Um, let me get back to you. And she gets back to me promptly and says, no, no problem at all. You just need your passport number and we need, you know, a few other things. And so I go and I, you know, still remember it was uh, Tony Lake and it was about five or six people. Joe Nye, one of my professors at Harvard was, was also there. Um, and I remember sitting there thinking to myself, I can't, I can't believe this is happening. And I, I hope at some point nobody is going to say something like, well, you're not even a citizen of this country. So why, like, because I, I kept, I was so conscious of the fact that I kept saying when I was giving my views, I would say, we should be doing this in the Balkans and realizing that I was saying it naturally and effortlessly and totally from my heart, but I wasn't a citizen of America. I had sort of, I, I, I had decided I was a citizen in my heart, but I wasn't formally a citizen. And so was somebody going to notice? And of course, nobody did. You eventually start working in television after, not after, concurrently with uh, working in magazines and, and Newsweek. Uh, before you start appearing on television regularly, which you've done now for decades, is there a particular feeling about the beast that is television uh, before you got accustomed to it? I got a very good um, training in television by not getting a training in television. So the first thing that happens to me is I'm, I'm you know, writing a column for Newsweek um, and ed editor of Newsweek International, and I get a call from George Stephanopoulos, whom I do not know. Um, and he says, uh, I'm taking over the, the, the Sunday morning show at ABC, the This Week with, what used to be called This Week with David Brinkley. And you remember, at that time, those Sunday morning shows and the discussion panel around them was, was like a very prestigious uh, place to be on television. There were only three networks. Each of them had one show on Sundays. Meet the Press didn't even have a roundtable, so there were only two real roundtables. Um, and he says, I'd love for you to, to become part of the, you know, 
one of, be one of the regulars with George Will and Cokie Roberts. And I had barely done any television at that point. I, I'd, I'd been on Charlie Rose a bit. I'd done a few you know, hits here and there. Um, and so I'm, I'm surprised, I'm flattered. And I, we work out a deal. I just had a young kid, my, my son. And I said to him, I can't do it every week because I would, if I came down Saturday every week and left Sunday, uh, essentially the, the time I get to spend with my, my kid, I would, I, half of it would be gone in Washington, more than half. So we work out a deal where I do it every other week and ABC flew my son down with me. So we had this wonderful routine for, for many years and later my daughter. Um, and I was then expecting to be given some training in television. And I, I mentioned it to Tom Batag, the executive producer. Um, and he says, no, Fareed, this is, this is journalism. It's not entertainment. We want you because of the way you think, because of the way you write. Um, you're perfectly articulate. Just get on the show and talk. And I never got a single day of training. Uh, and what that said to me, which is, I think, more true than most people realize, is that television is actually very conducive to intelligence. Uh, you have to, you know, you have to know how to be reasonably articulate, but uh, unlike on print where you can meander a lot, television is very parsimonious. You have to make your point and there has to be some substance to it. Otherwise, people will stop listening. And I always, I always remember that feeling of being on the, the, the show, particularly with George Will, who was a very, very good role model because George was economical with his words he was always conscious of the time limits, but he always made sure to say something intelligent and substantive. You know, he always had this feeling that I've got it. I, I always think of it as almost like Japanese haiku. You don't have a lot of words, but you, you know, you can have an impact with, with, a, with a few carefully chosen words. But perhaps most importantly, you once told me, the senators in the green room or whoever else was in the green room could serve as babysitters for 12 to 14 minutes while you're on the air, correct? A couple of times, I remember uh, very sweetly, the senators stayed because, you know, they would usually have done their segment because the, the discussion section was afterwards, but they would sit and stay and chat with, with, yeah, with Omar. He barely remembers it, but John McCain once did that. John McCain sat in, you know, while for the 15 minutes of the, of the discussion roundtable, he sat and chatted with Omar and was explaining to him how, uh, be, you know, what, what it was like to be a pilot. Uh, I remember that's what they talked about. Um, and very interestingly, I'm sure he doesn't remember this. Joe Biden was one of the people. Uh, and I remember the, this very interesting moment with Biden. I, I said I was explaining to Omar that he's the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And I said, what do you think, uh, a Senator, is the most important thing that you do as chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And he looked at me and said, honestly, Fareed, appear on shows like this. It gives me a platform to talk to the American people about foreign affairs, but we're, you know, we're not the Appropriations Committee. We don't, we don't, we don't uh, allocate the budgets. Uh, and you know, then, he tried, then he tried to explain that to Omar. Um, I kind of you know, look back and wish I had taken some video, but I didn't. Those early years, growing up in India, 
growing up in the home that you did and the lessons that you learned, uh, and then the early years at Yale. Can you point to, uh, or is there a thread between the lessons learned or experiences you had in those early years and the work that you do today? I think I always try to remind myself uh, why, I, why I got so passionate about this stuff. Um, that, it, you know, I, I, fe- I remembered how the stakes, I remembered the sense of uh, the, the importance of politics, of, of, of why it's, it's, it's important to get it right. You know, as I was saying to you, watching my father, realizing that, you know, the difference between politics going right and, and going wrong it, it makes a big difference to people's everyday lives. You, they don't think of it that way, but you know the difference between living in a world of peace and a world of war, the difference between living in a world that's stable, uh, in which you know the country is sort of broadly speaking at peace with itself, versus tearing itself apart over sectarian or other differences. So I, I've always tried to kind of keep that in mind as my you know my goal. Like that's why I'm doing this. Um, but I also uh, try to always remember what an honor and what a privilege it is to be able to do what you love and actually make a living doing it, uh, to feel that sense of responsibility that comes from it, to never take it lightly, never to, you know, to recognize that, look, as I say, luck has played a huge role in this, but for whatever reason, and luck has a lot to do with it, I have this great gig, I have this platform where I get to talk to the world. I have this column where I get to explain, you know, what I'm thinking to the world and to take it seriously and and, and to not, you know, ever forget what a what a treasure it is and how, how privileged I am to be able to do it. Uh, and, you know, and, and, uh, and uh, sort of, you know, it, 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 because of that also, you know, to like to treat people well, to never be an asshole, to, you know, I don't live up to all that, but when I don't, I'm disappointed in myself because I do have that standard in mind. Well, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, and it's always a pleasure and an educational experience to watch the show, uh, and that's the best of journalism right there. When, again, a journalist makes someone think about things that they either have thought about or and but just can't put into words, or it's a new idea completely, and that comes across every time on your show. Thank you so much. Next time we get a chance, hopefully, to talk about uh, the world of wine, which is a whole whole other love, I know. It'll be my pleasure, bud. Fareed Zakaria. His most recent book is 10 Lessons for a Post-Pandemic World. And you can see him every week on Fareed Zakaria GPS, Sundays at 10 a.m. and again at 1 p.m. Eastern Time on CNN. Before the cheering started is a production of June 14th Productions and Gemini 13 Productions. This episode was created and written by me. Guitar playing? That's me as well. No extra charge. I'm Bud Mishkin, and this is Before the Cheering Started. Thanks for joining us on The Journey.